Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Lauren Randall, College Coach Consultant and former member of the Georgetown Undergraduate Admission Office. She and I will be discussing supplemental essays. Most of you have heard of the Common Application Essay, right? Well, many colleges require one or more additional essays on top of that one, and those essays are called supplements. We'll be discussing the what's, where's, why's, and uh, wherefores of those. <laughs> For my third segment, Kathy Ruby, veteran college coach, finance consultant, and former senior financial aid officer at St. Olaf College, will be here to discuss why merit-based college aid packages are often so different from each other. Uh, last week, we addressed how need-based aid packages can vary um, in last week's show. But before we move on to those, we'll be talking to Megan Stubendeck, Senior Director of Instruction at Arbor Bridge, which is one of our partner test companies here at College Coach. Megan will help us figure out when students should take the SAT or the ACT. Welcome, Megan. Hi. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so, Megan, it, it, it seems like it's a simple question of when students should take the SAT or the ACT. I mean, I think the College Board and the ACT have recommendations, but it's gotten much more complicated in recent years. At least people's understanding of it has seems to have become more complicated. So, let's start with why don't you, why don't you give us what you consider to be the basic timeline for when students should take the SAT or ACT? You're right. It definitely has gotten uh, a little bit more complicated, mostly because of pressure as kids hear that their neighbor next door is preparing at this point and someone else is doing something different. And there's been a a little bit of a rat race to it. But it actually is pretty simple if you follow um, the general guidelines um, that both the College Board and the ACT have, have recommended, which we do do ascribe to. And I think the, the major thing to remember if you're you're at all unsure is to remember that SAT and ACT test taking and prep is really a job for 11th graders. So junior year is when that's the time to do all of this um, or really focus on doing it. So the general, uh, the general plan we recommend for students is that there's, you really just think about it in four phases. Uh, when you think about test prep for SAT or ACT, phase number one is a planning phase. And that's when you take diagnostic exams and pick which tests you're going to prepare for. Uh, and it's also when you start as a family, both parents and students should be involved in this, in shopping around to figure out how you want to prepare. Maybe you want to prepare on your own for free using uh, free online resources. Maybe you want to study out of a book that you buy from Amazon. Maybe you want to uh, attend a class or hire a private tutor. That, that can be a long process. And the most important thing is to do that all at once at the beginning and to uh, use that time uh, fruitfully so that you, you have time to, to compare um, the options. So that's your planning phase. And then you have three separate phases for your three attempts at the exam. And I will suggest that everybody plan for three. Not everybody has to take the test three times. Sometimes people take it twice and they get all the scores they need and they're good to go. But you should have that backup third plan, um, third time planned. And those different phases happen at different times as well. So planning phase number one, we generally recommend 
That is for uh, the fall of your junior year. So 11th grade fall is a great time to do it. You can do it as early as actually right now before school even starts. So that's Somewhere between 10th and 11th grade is also a good time to get started. Uh, but put your plan in place by the end of the fall of your junior year, and that means then you can start prepping that first prep for your first test in the winter. You take two to three months getting ready for your first attempt at the exam, and most students should take their first SAT or ACT early in the spring, so February, April, March, maybe even May. Then you take a little bit of a break, and then you start back up prepping for your second test, And that one, you only probably need four to six weeks, about half the prep time. And that leads to your test, your second test in late spring of your junior year, or maybe even summer after junior year. So that's May, June, July, August period. Then you can take another little break. And then you start prepping again for your final take if you need it in the early fall of your senior year. So you'll take it probably in September or October. And that's the general breakdown. It's just those four phases, um, planning now in the uh, fall of junior year and then taking an exam early in spring, uh, early in the spring in your junior year, uh, sort of summer and spring of your junior year for your second time, and the third time is your senior fall. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, really, it's really that simple. <laughs> Okay, which is great, and 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 uh, I'm really pleased to know that my advice is is also your advice. So um, now I wanted to kind of dig into why it's a good idea to take it three times. I mean, I've always heard of the number three. I think you know, decade, literally decades ago, because I've been doing this for 25 plus years now. Um, a college board representative said that they do see improvement up to three times, and then after that, it's just really rare. Is that what you found? Like, why do you recommend taking it three times? It's exactly the same reason. We also on the test prep side generally see that students, by the time they take it the third time, their official test, that's about as high as they're going to get. The only kids who can really radically shift after the third test is if they radically shift the way they take the exam and their entire prep. So one place you sometimes see students change is if they maybe studied on their own for the first three exams and then they decide to hire a tutor and completely overhaul the way they approach the exam for that fourth time. We have seen movement there, but it, it's, it's pretty rare to move after number three. Uh, the other thing, too, is the reason that we say up to three is that students do fluctuate every time they take the exam. So the first time you take it, you're nervous. Your first time out, it's probably not going to be your best. Most students do improve at least in one section, um, sometimes in all of the sections of the exams, the second time or the third time they take the test. And we also build in three always for students because you just never know what's going to happen. Maybe you get you know, the flu, the day you plan to take your second exam and you just don't do as well. Or maybe something goes wrong in the room at the proctor and, uh, you know, they miscall call the time and it makes you nervous. So we always say just have three as your backup just in case um, and always plan for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had a student whose calculator died while he was, you know, in the middle of the SAT. It was, <laughs> oh, no. you know... So stressful for him, you know, I mean, I, he was actually able, he did remarkably well under the circumstance, but that's, you know, he'd even checked, I think, put in a new battery. So the battery was faulty. So you just can't, I mean, I I don't know, like, yeah, you really should plan for those three times because something can go wrong. Um, 
Exactly. The one other thing exactly. that I would comment that I wanted to know if you've observed this is that I kind of find that out by the third time they often are more relaxed. Like what I tell students is, look, it is what it is. We've got two scores from you. Um, you know, your highest score is your worst case scenario. We're building a list based on that score. If you do better, awesome. Like we can celebrate and we can like maybe even add in a few more colleges. And if you don't, it is what it is. And somehow that sort of takes the pressure off. At least some of the students, they go in and occasionally I've really seen a big improvement just because they are more relaxed in that circumstance. They're kind of like, well, I'm not going to do worse. Or if I do worse, it doesn't matter because the colleges will take the highest score. So I can really only do better. So have you guys observed anything like that? Or is that just me that I've seen that? No, that's definitely right. We've seen that with a lot of students, actually, um, that they sort of the one of the things that we always talk with kids about is that the mental part of the game or part of the test is just as important to the test as actually knowing the content. And that's what you're seeing right there is a great example of it. We've also seen a slight reverse trend too in students who have actual test anxiety and are really nervous about testing, that if they know they can take the test three times and they already know they're going to take it two months away, when they take that second test, weirdly enough, it sort of releases the pressure. They've got that first test under their belt. They know what to expect. They go into the second one knowing, well, I got that one later down the road that I can, I know is going to be the one that really counts. And it relieves the pressure just enough off of that second test that their real abilities can shine through. And so we've seen it in both cases for test numbers two and three. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And I, you know what, I'm going to use that too when I'm talking to my students. Remember, if you don't do well here, there's the next test. So don't panic. You know, exactly. I think that's a good one. Yeah. All right. So one of the things that's kind of driving me nuts, so I'm, I'm not going to play it. I'm not going to be coy about my feelings about this, is I'm seeing more and more families have their students take the SAT maybe in 10th grade. I mean, you know, and they'll say, well, we just wanted to see how they were going to do. Or sometimes they actually think they're ready because maybe the student is a very advanced math student. And of course, the student doesn't do well. And and. And then I always have to say to them, you know, the PSAT and the pre-ACT are to see how you're going to do. That's what those tests are for. Um, so I don't know. What Are you observing that as well? Students really beginning to, you know, families kind of having their students take the test really early, like well before the, um, you know, the, the test prep, the test companies want them to take it. Yeah, we are seeing that, and we're seeing a lot of of families coming to us and asking us, "What should we be doing?" My student is in ninth or tenth grade. We need to we need to get on the test prep train, and we always try to tell families, "Nope, this is not the time. There are other things you can be focusing on." So um, the big thing I 100% agree with you, Sally, is if you want to take a practice test to know how you're going to do, if you're in that space. That's definitely what the PSAT is for, and more and more schools are giving the PSAT. The the College Board actually has now created a PSAT for 8th and ninth graders, a PSAT for 10th graders, and then the regular PSAT that most students take in their 11th grade. So there's now lots of PSATs available, and I would say talk to your uh, school to find out if they offer it. It's up to your high school whether or not they're going to give that exam on campus. Um, you can also take the, the pre-ACT, um, which is an option um, as well for families and students. Um, the other, if you're really gunning and you don't have access to either one of those, you could if you wanted to. You could take a look at the free questions that the ACT and SAT have online, but I would seriously dissuade people from studying at that point. If you just want to kind of get a look like, oh, this is what the SAT is, that's a great place for it. But really, generally, test prep and studying shouldn't happen until the 11th grade period. 
um, as I was talking before, it's because the exam is meant for 11th graders. Um, and so you actually brought up a really interesting case study, too, is we see a lot of students who are like, oh, I'm super advanced in math. I'm an honors math, or maybe I'm even in 10th grade and beginning to explore calculus. I should take the SAT or ACT. Now I'm prepared. Well, remember, math is only half the test of SAT or ACT. Uh, there is a whole verbal section. And if your verbal section is low, like you're not as great or as advanced as you um, in the English literature and, and reading and humanities, you're probably not going to see the, the great score you want overall. And that, that total score matters uh, when you apply to colleges. So you should wait until both of your scores are in a great place and that you are intellectually and academically ready to do well in both, both parts. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. So if a family um, is just really insistent that their student do some kind of preparation? Is there something meaningful as early as like 10th grade or even 9th grade? Like what are, like, is there something meaningful that they can do that might actually help them over time, you know, do better on the exam? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that students can do is focus, first of all, on academics. The exams have moved, particularly with the SAT's rewrite in 2016, uh, the exams have moved in line with what students learn in high school uh, in their academic courses. And so nailing down your academic work and making sure it is uh, right, uh, right where it needs to be so that when you do start test prep, you don't have to learn a lot of new material, you don't have to do a lot of reviewing, that will make the process so much easier for you. And I'm sure, Sally, you would also agree as a college counselor there is that Having great grades can only help you also in the, in the college admissions process. So it sort of kills two birds with one stone. I think the second thing that uh, families can do, because this is, I think, the largest gap we see with students, and it's actually the hardest thing to fix in a very short term, is reading comprehension and ability. So what we're noticing is that most high schools focus a lot of their reading and textual analysis on fiction, literature, but that actually makes up a very small portion of the reading sections of the SAT and ACT. Those exams are mostly nonfiction, things like uh, op-eds, articles from scientific journals. Uh, They might be articles from news sources. Those are the kind of long-form nonfiction that students don't have a lot of access to and don't do a lot of analysis of in school. So I would recommend for those students is uh, go ahead and find sources. Maybe look at the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Scientific American, those sorts of sources, and expose yourself to every couple, every week. Pick a couple of articles and read them. Think about them. Make sure you can get through them. And then I think the other source you can start looking at are historical documents. Um, that's a big thing that's popped up on the SAT recently. They might be documents from the 1700s, documents from the 1800s abolition movement, women's suffrage movement, take a look at those documents and really familiarize yourself with the way and get comfortable with the way that they, um, they write in those periods. Um, and that's also, you know, makes is a good boon for your history class. When you do documents in history, get comfortable with them in your history class so that when you see them on the SAT, you can, you can feel comfortable in that moment too. Mm-hmm. All right. So we only have basically one minute left, but is there a reason that a student might need to take the test in, in sort of not in that typical timeline? I'm kind of thinking about like maybe an athlete who has tournaments on a lot of the days of the SAT or ACT. Is, is that in line with your thought? 
Absolutely. Those students will still take it mostly uh, in their junior year. They may need to start planning a little bit earlier just because they've got seasons to work around or maybe they need to get uh, scores to the, the college coaches beforehand um, a little bit earlier than applications normally do. And so they just need to start the planning probably by the summer between 10th and 11th grade. The other exception, too, would be students taking APs or subject tests. Those kids will be taking them in their junior year probably in the, uh, in the May period. And so those students, we want to try and keep them away from SAT prep and ACT prep from about April through May just so they can focus on APs. And in those cases, they may want to start their first test just a little early and get it, make sure by March they're done with their first attempt of the SAT, ACT. Mm-hmm. All right, great. All right, thanks so much, Megan. You're welcome, Sally. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, I'll be speaking with Lauren Randall about the what's, when's, and why's of supplemental essays. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to the Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Lauren Randall and I will now be speaking about supplemental assays. Welcome, Lauren. Hey, Sally. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Good. So, all right. So I think a lot of people know about the main common application essay. When I talk to people on the phone, they're aware that there, that there is sort of one big essay that needs to be done. But what, but I do run into clients every day who don't know that many colleges have additional essays that are required. They're, they're completely dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And when I use the word supplemental, essays. They're, they don't know what that means. So why don't we start with that? Just on a basic level, what are supplemental essays? Sure, because I, I hear the same thing. There's like this uh, dead silence after we go through and say, okay, you have your common F essay to write. Now let's look at your list of schools because you probably have supplemental essays to write. And then it's, you know, radio silence. They're like, wait, <laughs> what do you mean I have more essays to write? Um, and, and, you know, that, that can be a shock. And it's something that you need, that students need to be aware of now so that they can really make a schedule and plan out a, a, a writing schedule for the next couple of months because these are not something that can be, that can wait to the last minute. So what are they? So everybody knows that the Common App essay goes, it's one essay you write and then all the colleges read that same essay. But as you start adding on colleges to your Common App, and you say, I want to apply to Villanova and St. Joe's. Well, then on that site, it, when you add it to the Common App, it might tell you, well, Villanova has a supplemental essay or St. Joe's has a supplemental essay, meaning that just that college wants you to write something specific for them. It will be their own prompt, their own word length, and only that college will read what you write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important that you say their own word length because people will ask me, well, how long is the essay? And I say, could be 100 words, could be 650 words. It can really vary. Absolutely. It can totally vary. There's no rhyme or reason to these supplemental essays. It could be a list of three words or it could be an unlimited uh, word count for a new essay. And I think one thing I didn't mention here uh, that, I, that I need to right away is to say, okay, everybody should take a deep breath. Not all colleges require a supplemental essay. So that what's so important here is figuring out your list first so you know how much writing you have to do. Because some colleges will ask for one or more supplemental essays, and some will ask for nothing at all beyond just the main common app essay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you want to look it up and try and figure it out so you know how much time it's going to take you. So I think that brings up mm-hmm. the next obvious question, which is where can a student find those essay topics? Like how, how do they find them? Right. So um, many colleges will post their, their writing requirements on their own admissions website. Um, so that's usually the place that students check first. However, you might be surprised that they don't always write what the, what the topic is, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, but if they don't say what the writing supplement or the writing requirement is on their website, you absolutely can find it in the common application. So like I said, when you start to search and add your colleges to, to your common app, then you, then you click on that college, and within that section, it might say questions, it might say writing, 
um, uh, something like that, then you can find it within that college, the prompt. The, the reason they might not put it on their website is that it might differ. The prompt and the length and the requirements might differ depending on what program or major you apply to for that college. Okay. All right. So then how does a student find it out in that situation? Simply by filling out the questions. You've got to start filling out the, the form um, in the Common App for that college. So you'll click on questions, and it will say, um, when are you applying for? Okay, fall 2019. What is your intended major? You'd have a drop-down list, and you click on engineering at Columbia. Well, then, boom, something else now pops up that wasn't there before. It's a prompt specifically for that major at that university. Um, so you might not know what the prompt is until you start filling out the questions within um, that specific college's uh, section on the common application. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, because of that, I always recommend that students fill out those basic questions early because they're really easy to do anyway. And that way that'll help you That's- figure out what those essays are. That's great advice. Those are really easy questions. So, yeah, absolutely. They, they can be filling it out now, gathering that information. It doesn't mean you have to sit down and write it in one shot. In fact, I'd advise you not to do that, but gather that information now. And I will also say that once you gather that, that might really change your list. I can't tell you how many students I've had that said, oh, yeah, I want to apply to Stanford and Brown. And they start to realize, wait a minute, I have that many supplements to write? Let's Let's rethink this. What's what's reasonable to get done by the deadline? Yes. I used to work at University of Chicago, so I know we lost students because of our essays, which was fine because we we kept the right ones. We kept the right ones. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, So we've already mentioned a few schools, but just in general, when should students expect that they might see a supplemental essay? Like what kinds of colleges do you have the supplemental essays? Sure. Well, definitely highly selective schools are notorious for for asking a lot of their applicants. Um, they are trying to, to make hair-splitting decisions between students with great grades and perfect scores. So, so they want more writing, more information, more opportunity. They, they don't see this as a, a chore for students. They see this as an opportunity. Tell us more. Give, give us Give us something. Um, so definitely the more selective schools are requiring more in the applications, you should just uh, assume you have a lot of writing to do if you have highly selective schools on your list. That's not to say that, that less selective schools don't have supplements, but they might be optional. They might not be required. They might be optional. Um, so, you know, I, that's a, it's a good question. I don't actually know. I'm curious um, what percentage of colleges out there have an, have an, have a supplement. That that might be something we ask our team. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, so definitely assume highly selective. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I feel like more selective. Yeah, you're more likely, but it has surprised me. Some of the schools that are a little less selective that still have at least an optional question. And then that kind of mm-hmm. then begs the question, should a student write it? So what do you think about that? I, I tell my students, if the word optional is there, it means it's optional for everybody else but you. You guys do it. <laughs> um, I don't consider anything in the, in the application optional. And the reason being, especially think about it from, from the less selective schools, they're really trying to gauge demonstrated interest. They need to figure out 
who's coming to their university if they enroll them. You know, a place like Harvard isn't worried about uh, about their enrollment rates, but less left of colleges are. So if they put down an optional essay and you choose to do it, well, you're sending a clear message to that school that you're really interested in the school. You're willing to take the time to do what they ask of you, um, to give them that information. So I think, you know, it, it absolutely expresses interest. Um, and I, I think it might have a, a, have a role in whether or not students get merit scholarships, um, whether or not they take the time to fill out that, that essay. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's just my anecdotal experience. I don't have any empirical data to back that up, but that seems, I, I've seen it anecdotally. Mm, well, I would agree with you. The one exception I would make is that sometimes I've seen on schools, uh, they'll say, you know, optional, if you have something about your transcript, you need to explain, like, I got a D in 10th grade, because I had mono, like, if you have something specific to explain, students don't always, you know, if, if nothing bad has happened, and you've had consistently yeah. good grades, then you don't need to answer a question that's specifically about tell us if something has negatively impacted your academics. Oh, that is such a good point, Sally. That um, absolutely, I, I totally agree with you. I give my students the same advice. That in that case, it, it's okay to leave it blank. In fact, most students would leave that that blank um, and don't fill it up with just fluff. You know, in that case, that would I would say would work against you. You're, you know, more isn't uh, more isn't. It doesn't mean that it's better to to put um, down just something that isn't that relevant. Um, you know, they really you need to give the admissions officer something concrete and specific. That's, that's not an essay prompt, but that's a really good point to bring up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, more is definitely not better. In admit, this is a good thing for students mm-hmm. to know in general that more is not better with an admissions um, application. So, um, all right. So, in general, when are supplemental questions available, um, and when should students start writing them? Mm-hmm. So, as soon as um, the common application goes live, which is August first, um, most colleges will will update. Uh, or release their supplemental essays um, within the common app as well. It is not always the case. I have seen, um, uh, like last year when I was working with students, there would be a note that said the writing section is not updated yet within the month of August. So you might have to check back. Um, but I would say largely um, they are they're ready to go come August 1st. Um, that's an important point because if you started gathering this information um, prior to that, saying, oh, well, what, I, you know, Stanford is my dream school. What essays do I have to write for them? And you look up the prompts from last year, don't assume that they are the same. Um, a lot of these schools will change things up. A lot of them don't, but a lot of them do. Um, so mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're not wasting any time on writing an old, for an old prompt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think philosophically sometimes people wonder um, you know, I've gotten this question. Why do schools require them when they should already have a good sense of your writing from your from your common application or your coalition essay? You know, students ask me that question a lot. Yeah, and I and I I get it because but they're also probably tired of writing and saying isn't enough enough. Um, but I really hope that you know, they can spin the perspective and say it is an opportunity because when you're writing your common app essay, you are not writing for a school or for a, a particular college. For the supplements, 
You absolutely are. You're writing for that college. So you need to know that college inside and out and be able to respond in an appropriate way for that school. You know, University, University of Chicago is not looking for the same response as, um, like I said, the engineering prompt for Columbia. Um, that's just, it's totally different, and sh- students should be writing for that school. So it it can separate a student. If I say, wow, this student really is a good match, they, they demonstrate that. They know my school. They're responding appropriately. They've done their homework. And I, I feel like they're maybe likely to accept my offer. So, again, I'm, I am trying to understand fit, match, um, and interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be going into this in more detail later, or I should say, not later in this show, but in in um, in future shows when we talk specifically about each supplement. But I think that that the point that you just made is really important. The colleges are looking to see are you a match for them. So you know you're going to want to read the, their question really carefully. You're going to want to make sure that you're answering like this is the situation in which you are talking to them to that particular admission office specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, so like University of Chicago, super intellectual. You know, what are you know why do you want to go to University of Chicago? That might be the kind of topic um, that comes up for them. Other schools are going to be interested in something completely different because the character of the school mm-hmm. is really different. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um, well, let's see. Is there anything that we didn't cover? I think we've gone through sort of the main points, but let me know if there's a question I've forgotten to ask you. Um, I think the only, just to, to follow up on that, um, that last point, in terms of helping students think of it as an opportunity, um, just remember that while these applications feel like so much work, they are pretty limited. So you write a great common app essay, but hopefully you presented one side of you. It's narrow. It's specific. You can't put your entire life into that. Um, so the supplements are also an opportunity. It's not just to, uh, you know, suck up and, and tell the admissions office exactly what you think they want to hear, but it's an opportunity to show maybe another side of you or maybe, you know, would have been a boring, long um, common app essay, but you want to write about a particular experience you had that shows you were um, a, a, a great fit for their program and their school. So you, I, I hope students consider it an opportunity um, to give them more information and, um, and know that if the college asks for it, they genuinely care. They're reading these. It's not like they're just saying, okay, do more work, and then it doesn't really matter. Time and again, when I was reviewing, reviewing applications, it, it, the supplements um, could, could really be the deciding factor for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will absolutely say that with um, when I worked at Chicago in particular, the kind of supplemental essays ended up often being more important to me, um, you know, because it was directly geared towards us. And I got a really good sense of, you know, what the student thought about the school. So um, so absolutely. I think that that's a really good I think that's a really good point. Reframe your thought about this. We, you're thinking about this. We know you're really busy, but this is a remarkable, remarkable opportunity for you to let the school know why, you know, you really deserve a place there. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Absolutely, Sally. I always love being on the show with you. All right. When we get back, Kathy Ruby will be explaining why different colleges offer different kinds of merit awards. So stick around.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests or people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Kathy Ruby and I will be discussing why different colleges offer different kinds of merit awards. So welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Nice to be here. All right, so I think it is important to note that today's finance topic is a continuation of last week's finance conversation when Shannon Vasconcelos and Beth Heaton talked about why colleges offer different need-based packages. So please note that last week it was about need-based packages where they look at the family income um, and other and assets, et cetera. And then today we're going to be talking about why different colleges offer different merit scholarships. So... Um, so let's start with the first question, um, just so we are all on the same page. What are merit scholarships? And I'm always surprised at how many people are confused by this. I think a lot of people think all scholarships are merit scholarships, as one example. Yes, and it, and it is confusing because some colleges offer need-based aid as 
scholarship. So it is confusing. So, so for our, the purposes of our conversation today, merit scholarships are offered by colleges, not private organizations. So we're just going to be talking about college merit scholarships. Um, and they're offered by most, but not all colleges. Uh, and they're awarded without regard to a family's financial needs. So um, no information about income or assets goes into deciding who gets this money. And, you know, merit scholarships are usually based on the student's academic profile, uh, but sometimes it might be based on other characteristics that a student brings to the table. So maybe it's music or community service or your intended major or a particular interest or a passion that you have. Um, and for today's purposes, we're not going to talk about athletic scholarships because that's really a whole different game. No pun intended there. <laughs> um, so 15 years ago or so, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we used to say merit scholarships are only offered by private colleges. But in today's world, they're often offered by public universities, um, especially to out-of-state residents uh, who they might be trying to attract to generate some revenue for their school. Um, and then most importantly, and this is, this is very important, the reason that merit scholarships are awarded is not necessarily to reward your great, your great accomplishments. It's really because the college is trying to entice you to enroll at their school. So think about them as a discount, and different discounts are offered to different students depending on how badly the college wants that particular student to enroll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is a really important note. I run into parents a lot who are confused by that. Um, you know, especially the parents seem to think, well, my child worked really hard. She got good grades, so why wouldn't she get a merit scholarship? And it's like, well, because the yeah. schools are reached for her, and she's average in that pool. And I always try and emphasize average in that pool is is great, but they yeah. don't need to give her money then because in their pool <laughs> right. she's average. And they're like, oh, exactly. you know, <laughs> so um, I know it's hard to hear that, that kids are average, but usually if I say average in Chicago's pool or Harvard's, you know, <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah. of course, you know. So um, I also wanted to comment on the um, public universities. I mean, again, it's probably going to be much harder to get a scholarship at like a University of Michigan where people are banging down the door to get to get in compared to a University of Alabama, which is, I mean, my sense is they've started throwing out, giving out a lot of scholarships because they're trying to attract more students from out of state. Is that your observation as well? Yes. And different states have a different need to attract those students. Um, <clears throat> University of Maine is a good example. They're offering a essentially a discount to every out-of-state resident um, to, to bring a scholar. They offer them a scholarship that brings their price down to what it costs to go to their flagship university in their state. But you think about Maine, they may have a shortage of 18 to 22-year-olds. They are one of our oldest states, right? So they have a reason to have to want to attract out-of-state students versus University of Michigan. They're pretty selective, um, and, you know, they're... They're not a young state either, but they have plenty of plenty of kids who want to go to University of Michigan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So, what determines how much um, a college might award in merit aid? Okay. So, so remember, and we've kind of already talked about this. Colleges are businesses, right? Um, they need to generate enough revenue to keep themselves going. And this is especially true of colleges that don't have a large enough endowment to completely, you know, support themselves with an endowment, right? So most most colleges are dependent on the tuition that they bring in 
and on the revenue that they bring in. So they want to give away just the right amount of money. Um, and so the types and amounts of merit aid offered by a college are, are really completely driven by how they compete in the higher education marketplace. So we've already talked a little bit about this. What's the profile of students who want to go there? How many applicants do they have? Where are they located? How selective are they? So in other words, how hard do they have to work to get students to apply to and go to their school? Um, and so, you know, we've, we've kind of already alluded to the fact that not all schools offer merit aid. Um, certainly the Ivy Leagues and highly selective colleges don't offer merit scholarships. Um, and honestly, they like to say because it's, they're all about access, which is true. Their access is very important to them. But part of why they don't offer merit aid is because they don't have to. <laughs> so they don't have to attract students to their school. The students who are able to pay are willing to pay. The families, mm-hmm. you know, who have a student get into those schools, quite frankly, they're willing to pay. So those schools don't offer merit aid. So it's not a completely linear relationship because other factors do come into play. Um, but the more selective and well-known and prestigious a college or a program is, the less likely it is uh, that they offer merit aid. So, you know, when you think about a college versus a program, if you're applying to a college where you're well above the median of students admitted there, but maybe you're applying to their engineering school, which is really highly ranked, um, even though you're a strong student for that university as a whole, because you're applying to the engineering program, which is in high demand, you might not get a merit scholarship. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then another example of how it's not not linear. I mean, it's not a direct relationship. Um, think about Grinnell College, right? We love Grinnell. Um, it's an awesome school. Really very selective. And I checked on Big Future, and they admit only 29% of applicants. So they're academic profile is really, really strong. Um, and according to Big Future, the profile of accepted students is actually very similar to Boston College, um, whose admit rate is at 32% right now. So Boston College is actually a little less selective than Grinnell. Um, but Boston College offers hardly anything in merit aid. They have this one presidential scholarship that they give to, to essentially their top 20 kids, which means you have to be kind of amazing to get that scholarship. And it's a full tuition scholarship, but, but you have to be pretty amazing. Um, versus Grinnell, which offers merit aid, according to collegedata.com, um, to about the top quartile of their applicant pool. And they offer awards that range from 12000 to $25,000 per year. And that's simply because Grinnell is in Iowa and Boston College is in Boston. So Grinnell has to work harder to get kids to come there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I mean, I know like University of Chicago started offering merit scholarships and it was a relatively recent in their history. Mm-hmm. And it was back when yeah. they were trying to compete more with the Ivies. They're now positioned in a way that they are competing with the Ivies. They're more selective than some of the Ivies, but I think they still have their merit scholarship. So I imagine that at a certain point, it's hard to get rid of them, but, um, but it, it is, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, I it's think... Yeah, I mean, I think it is. There's some momentum there because there's an expectation. I do think, wasn't it Franklin and Marshall recently who really pulled back a lot on their merit aid? They may have gotten rid of it altogether. I just remember mm-hmm. reading a write-up about that. But it is, it's a bold move, right? Because there is there is the momentum. Once once they're there, there's an expectation that they're there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so how does a college decide what they are going to award uh, in merit aid? All right, so it's very complicated, um, and 
some colleges, you know, everybody does it differently. Some colleges offer to the top 10% of their pool, some to the top quartile, some to the top half. And then some actually offer some kind of a discount to just about every student in their applicant pool. So it really depends on the school. But, um, you know, colleges are analyzing this annually, which is important to know. I mean, they hire consultants. They use regression analysis. um, They look at the history of their yield um, for different categories of students. So yield, remember, is the percentage of students who say yes to your offer. Um, So they're looking at who said yes, who said no, based on how much money was offered in the previous round. Um, so, So the whole idea is it's based on a few principles that we've already alluded to, which are kids at the top of your applicant pool have more choices, so it's going to take more money to get them to enroll. And kids at the bottom of the pool really want your school, and they're reaching for your school, so they really want to get in, and they'll be willing to pay more um, so you can offer them less money. Um, And then there's lots of students in between, and there's other factors that might come into play, like geography, uh, gender, your intended major. Maybe maybe it's an unpopular major that they need filled. Um, It can also change from year to year, and this is hard for families sometimes. Um, and we, we've had this happen. Uh, one of my colleagues talked to a woman whose <clears throat> son got into Providence. I think it was Providence. I don't remember specifically which one. I may think it was Providence. But, you know, they knew somebody who had gotten a certain scholarship the year before, and her son had the same, if not better, profile, and he got less. But it turns out it happened to be a year when, you know, they had overfilled one year and needed to pull back a little the next year. So you really have to not, not take for granted Um, that things will always be the same. Um, And then, of course, the special programs, um, you know, music scholarships. uh, At St. Olaf, we had music scholarships mostly for majors, but we also had a level of scholarship that was for non-majors because we had a strong music program that needed a lot of participation. Um, And then we also awarded community service scholarships because that was something we valued as a college. Um, I had a student once who played the trumpet, and he went to Montana State, and he got a marching band scholarship. And it was something he kind of surprised him. He'd never been in a marching band before, but he could play oh. the trumpet. And he <laughs> needed to fill the marching band. <laughs> so, always good. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there are even little awards for doing things like visiting the campus or completing a FAFSA. So, always review the college's website and see what it is that they have to offer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. Um, is there a way to anticipate ahead of time how much merit aid a school might offer? <laughs> that would be, if we had the exact answer to that question, Sally, we'd be, we'd be set. Um, some schools are more transparent than others. And, and so I think the first step is to research websites like Big Future or Peterson's to get a real sense of how your student sits in a college's applicant pool. Or if your school has Naviance, um, that's a great tool as well because you can see where your student sits um, in the applicant pool. Um, Research, of course, the college's website and see what they say. So um, it tends to be large public universities tend to be pretty uh, upfront about who gets their scholarships. You know, they'll say you need to have a test score of X and a GPA of Y to be considered for this level of scholarship. So they'll be somewhat transparent. Um, private colleges tend to be a little more vague, although some will be transparent. It just depends on what their policies are. Um, you can look at a website like collegedata.com, 
And they actually, if you look up a college on that website, they'll tell you what percentage of students receive merit aid. So it gives you a sense. So as I was talking about top quartile or top half, it'll give you an idea of how that works. Um, And then don't be afraid during a college visit to first do your research, see whether they have merit scholarships. And then you would be very popular in an information session if you just ask the person who's presenting, you know, what's the profile of a student who might receive merit aid at your school and what's the average award? So it can be, um, you can get good answers that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just want to emphasize, it's always a good idea to ask questions. And this is a good question. Yes. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, and it, especially because, you know, that's where you're going to get your best information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, exactly. All right, so how can a student make sure that they're getting the most possible merit money? All right, well, so make sure to research the college. Um, most colleges will offer merit scholarships, or at least the academic ones, just as part of the admission process. And they'll come right out front and say, you know, you'll just automatically be considered for merit scholarships. But do your due diligence. If your student is a musician, make sure you research music scholarships and Obviously, that might need an audition. Um, and the most important thing to watch for is many colleges consider you automatically, but they may ask that you apply for admission by a certain deadline. And it may not coincide with other deadlines they have. So make sure you're meeting whatever priority deadline they have for scholarship consideration. So make sure you're getting your admission application in. Um, and then most important of all, when people ask me, how can I get money for college? It's all about the list of colleges. So make sure you sort of have a pyramid of colleges where you have more of the no-problem kinds of schools that you know you're going to get into, and then a few of the just-right target schools, and then just a couple of the challenging schools. Um, because mm-hmm. those no-problem schools are the ones that are most likely to offer you merit scholarships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I just want to put in another emphasis, put a little more emphasis on the admission deadline. Um, a few months ago, I was talking to a mother and... Uh, you know, her son was applying to a school where he would automatically get a scholarship, but I looked it up and he had missed the deadline by two weeks. So just based yeah. on that, they were going to lose something like 20000 a year. I mean, it was, it was, she was not it happy. Was a lot, yeah. And yeah. those deadlines are usually in the November, December timeframe, but they can be as early as October, but most of the time it's November, December. So really um, do your research there. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Okay. All right. So thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. All right. Thanks so much to Lori and and Kathy and all my guests today. Now I want to tell you about our show next week, hosted by my colleague, Ian Fisher. He and a current student at Lehigh will be reflecting on college life, and he'll also be talking about early decision and how to help students figure out if it's for them. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows with varied topics, such as last week's show, in which we discussed the pros and cons of accelerated degree programs and changes to the Common App. Um, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. On iTunes, It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. And don't forget that we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. 
Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.